What's up? Quick note here that this is part three of a three-part documentary series. You can definitely listen to this episode on its own, but you'll get a bit more out of it if you start at the beginning. This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. I don't need to tell you that Father's Day is coming up, June 19th, but I do need to tell you that Precision Pro is having a Father's Day sale. Go to precisionprogolf.com and save up to $40 off their award-winning rangefinders. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. So uh, for the purposes of this podcast, would you rather be known as Richard Howding or Dick Howding? It doesn't matter. And uh, are you the the club historian at uh, Oakland Hills or are you a club historian at, at Oakland Hills? Yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you, I am the, not because it's a declared fact, but if you go over there and ask anybody, they'll say, well, Dick's really the only one who knows any of this shit. Dick Howding's parents joined Oakland Hills Country Club in 1949. The year after that, Robert Trent Jones transformed Donald Ross's South Course into the famous monster of the 1951 U.S. Open. It was, as the historian Bradley Klein puts it, a repudiation of the past. The architecture at Oakland Hills had become modern, and modern was better. So when Dick was a kid, he found himself in a somewhat odd position. Even though he was young, it seemed to him that he was one of the few people at Oakland Hills who was curious about the club's history. I was always interested in the history of the course. I used to, even as a kid, go around the place and say, you know, I don't know, Dad, tell me something. Why is it Oakland Hills has had all these great tournaments and all this stuff that's really interesting in the history of golf? And there's there's not a damn thing anywhere in the club, on the walls or anywhere that would let you know any of this. You know, you go in, you look in the walls and here's, uh, you know, here's George Washington shaking hands with somebody at Mount Vernon and over here is a bunch of pictures of castles and trees and garbage that has nothing to do with anything. And that's the way I think that most clubs back in those days, in like the 50s and 60s, treated golf. It was like, it was like after every tournament Oakland Hills had, they said, okay, gather all that crap we got left from the tournament and put it in that dumpster. <laughs> this blasé attitude toward the past could also be seen in the South Course itself, which continued to evolve away from its original Ross design. Yet within the club, more people were becoming interested in the history of Oakland Hills. One member, Kay Healy, took it upon herself to collect a few artifacts. And she made this display in the second floor hallway at Oakland Hills that had all sorts of things I'd wondered about, you know, just hints of them. And I said, man, this is great, this is great. Dick Howding became a member in his own right in 1991, and about a decade later, he was asked to join the new Oakland Hills Heritage Committee. Suddenly, there was real momentum behind the effort to learn about the club's history. 
And soon, many members began to wonder whether modern actually was better. Or, to be more specific, whether Robert Trent Jones's renovation of the South Course in 1950 was, in fact, a huge mistake. I'm Garrett Morrison, and this is Fried Egg Stories. Today, we conclude our series, The Open Doctor and His Monster. The first two installments told the story of how Robert Trent Jones became the Open Doctor and went on to define an era of golf architecture. In this episode, we focus on the era that came next, when a movement emerged that challenged Jones's ideas. A movement that didn't start at Oakland Hills, but eventually made its way there. And eventually brought the name of Donald Ross back to center stage. In the Scottish Highlands in the 19th century, some lucky towns had their own seaside golf courses. And Dornick had a good one. It would later become known as Royal Dornick and acclaimed as one of the very best courses in the world. But when Donald Ross was born there in 1872, Dornick was not nearly as connected with the outside world as it is today. And his prospects were likely to be local. His father was an alcoholic mason, uh, struggled to make a living, came to the United States and helped build the uh, Capitol building in Albany. And uh, whatever money he was going to send home, he ended up drinking. My name is Bradley Klein. I'm a longtime historian of golf course architecture, written lots of books. Including the biography Discovering Donald Ross, which is one of the key books that reintroduced people to Ross and convinced them that his work was worth preserving. And Ross was living in a two-room house, uh, left high school. I don't think he graduated. But he was an intelligent, although not a well-read person, but intelligent, and he could form judgments very quickly. Uh, met old Tom Morris, went to apprentice with him at St. Andrews for a year, and he learned the trades of club making and um, greenkeeping. And he became recruited by the long-term secretary at Dornick, John Sutherland, to become the uh, pro greenkeeper at Dornick. So at the age of 23, he was the head greenkeeper and the pro, which was always the same job in Scotland in those days. And uh, he stayed there for three years. And then he met a uh, professor from Harvard University, a physicist, uh, Robert Wilson. I actually document in this book, Wilson and his wife stayed for a week in November of 1898. And uh, they invited Ross to come and become the head pro at Oakley in Boston. So he comes over on a boat. He's got a suitcase in one hand, and he's got a golf bag with six clubs in the other. And uh, he lands in New York off the ferry, takes the train up to Boston, and then walks, what was it, four miles to Robert Wilson's house. Like many Scotsmen who became club professionals in America back then, Ross did a bit of everything. He built and repaired clubs, gave lessons played at a high level, kept the greens, and, when necessary, designed or upgraded the courses themselves. After Oakley Country Club, Ross moved on to Essex County Club near Boston, and then a fledgling resort called Pinehurst in the North Carolina Sandhills. He would go on to have one of the most productive careers in the history of golf architecture. And he designed a total of about 410 golf courses. At one point, he was building 15% of all the golf courses in the United States. In this sense, Donald Ross was the Henry Ford of golf architecture. Just as Robert Trent Jones would do a few decades later, Ross scaled the business of golf course design. And then by the mid-1920s, he was the highest paid person in the golf industry. He was making more money than Walter Hagen. 
in those days, he was probably making sixty or seventy thousand a year, which was close to Babe Ruth salary. But he comes from nothing. But he happened to live in the right town near a golf course with access to international trade from、uh, tourists, and they brought him over. So he became part of the Scottish wave that came over with nothing to create a world. You know, that's that's what he did. It was an amazing American success story, if you will. All right, let's back up a bit. And zero in on how Ross's design at Oakland Hills came about, and why many consider it one of his best. When he was working at the Pinehurst Resort, Ross came into contact with a lot of wealthy and influential people, and he was savvy enough to recruit them as clients. That's probably how he met the auto executives from Detroit, who would eventually hire him to do the South Course at Oakland Hills. Back around 1913, 1914, Detroit was a boomtown. A lot of money was coming in, a growing industrial center, tremendous population, and、uh, you had a growing upper middle class. And golf was taking off. The property that would become Oakland Hills was in Birmingham, Michigan, a Detroit suburb, and it was a, it was an old farm field, and it was about 250 acres, as I recall, straddling、uh, both sides of Maple Avenue. Ross had his pick of the land, and he picked about a 180 acre, maybe 200 acre parcel on the south side, with just fantastic rolling terrain, about 40 feet of elevation, and、um, he extolled the site as ideal in terms of the contour, in terms of the sandy loam, and、uh, the construction began. Took place during World War One. He was aided in that process by his、uh, newly hired associate Walter Hatch. Now, at other courses, Ross was hired to build. He delegated a lot of responsibilities to Hatch and other associates. He had to; he couldn't personally attend to twenty, twenty-five projects at once. So, according to Bradley's estimate, Ross never even saw about a third of his courses. Another third he visited maybe once, and the rest he took a direct, ongoing interest in. Oakland Hills was in that last fortunate bucket. He was there repeatedly. Through a construction and opening, and it showed. He was able to use the scale and the width of the property, and the brilliance of Oakland Hills South Course as a routing is it's all organized around three or four high points, kind of primal nodes of activity. So, if you think about the topography, the clubhouse sits on a shelf, on a high point that is shared by the first tee, ninth green, tenth tee. And 18th green, they all converge right there. And then, as you radiate out, there's another high point that contains the eighth green, the ninth tee, the 11th green, and the 12th tee. And then there's a third high point that contains the 10th green, 11th tee, 17th green, and 18th tee. And you can see that, or you could see that, from the clubhouse. So you had a sense of heading out, and then these shared nodal points, convergence, and then separation. And the routing is absolutely brilliant. It's one of his best uses of land. It's not—it's not a back and forth. There's not parallel holes. They're scattered all over the place. You're shifting with the wind. You're tacking. You're always tacking. That—that that never changed. The bones of that golf course, as we say, the skeleton of it, is absolutely solid and unshakable. The other thing he was great at was building interesting greens that had lots of dramatic contour, and Oakland Hills always had that. 
Right away, Oakland Hills was a well-regarded course. Just five years later, it hosted the U.S. Open, won by Cyril Walker, with a score of 297, nine over. And at this point, the reputation of Ross's design seemed secure. But then, a depression and a war happened. And by the late 1940s, tastes had shifted. Ross was no longer held in his high esteem, and that enabled Robert Trent Jones to come in and modernize Oakland Hills without much pushback from the membership. Trent came out of the war in an era when the game was starting to change in terms of the the swing and the equipment and distance, and he became uh, very aggressively promoting himself and in effect turned his back on that whole pre-war generation of architects and architecture. And that's where what happened at Oakland Hills is so fascinating because that was the paradigm of that repudiation of the past. And a repudiation of the past is exactly what a young Dick Howding observed at Oakland Hills in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They said, okay, gather all that crap we got left from the tournament and put it in that dumpster. So for decades, the proverbial dumpster was where the original Ross design of the South Course at Oakland Hills stayed. But by the early 80s, there were signs that the tide of opinion was shifting once again. The big step, really, is first the publication by Jeff Cornish and Ron Witten of a book called The Golf Course in 1981, which essentially opened up everybody's eyes. All of a sudden, there's this new attractive study that documents the classic architects and which courses were designed and who did what. That started a big conversation in the industry. Another crucial moment was the 1986 U.S. Open, which was held at Shinnecock Hills Golf Club. Shinnecock Hills was an old design that had more or less retained its vintage identity. And it was a hell of an event. It proved that a golf course didn't need to be modernized in order to be relevant. So all of a sudden, now people are thinking about golf courses. And that set the stage for the 1988 U.S. Open at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts. The Country Club was another antique course with roots going back to the 1890s. And it had a new consulting architect, Reese Jones, the younger of Robert Trent Jones's two sons. Oh, I was there at the Country Club in 1988. Do, do you think that was the moment that he became the new open doctor? Absolutely. And interestingly enough, uh, as I just realized, he was 47 years old at the time, which was the exact same age his father was at Oakland Hills. But Reese, at this particular moment, was singing a very different tune than his father had at Oakland Hills in 1951. Reese made a big thing out of something he called restoration. That is, he claimed that his work had taken the country club back in time, not forward. What he kept talking about, naturalizing it, indigenous shapes, going back to the original landform. It's not clear to me how much historic restoration he did, because aerials were hard to find in those days. I don't know to what extent there were plans. But what he tried to do was bring back a lot more natural grasses, give it a scruffier look, and introduce a kind of a quirkiness to the rocks and the outcropping and and expose some of the native terrain. Certainly at the time, it was a welcome relief from all the modernization that had been going on. The restoration of the country club was a big story, and Reese made it a big story. He literally spent the entire open in the press tent. I should note here that we reached out to Reese Jones for an interview, but we didn't get a response. In any case, the 1988 U.S. Open 
did for Reese Jones what the 1951 U.S. Open had done for his father. It made him a star. But oddly enough, Reese didn't end up doing many more restorations. Instead, he became almost exactly the kind of open doctor that his father had been. He even worked at many of the same clubs, and his focus was on modernizing, not restoring. But the idea of golf course restoration had taken hold. In the 90s, architects like Ron Pritchard, Ron Force, and Tom Doak began to convince historic clubs to restore their courses. Superintendents like Carl Olson at National Golf Links and Bob Ranham at Garden City recovered greens and bunkers and fairway lines that had been forgotten for decades. Writers started to speak of the Golden Age, a period from the 1910s to the 1930s when American golf course design flourished. And they told readers about brilliant architects like Charles Blair MacDonald, Seth Rayner, Alistair McKenzie, A.W. Tillinghast, and, of course, Donald Ross. Season two of Fried Egg Stories is made possible by Precision Pro Golf. All right, I told you at the top of the episode about the sale going on right now and through June 19th at precisionprogolf.com. Lots of great deals there at the moment, but I want to zero in on one in particular, and that's $30 off the NX9 Slope Rangefinder. The NX9 Slope happens to be my rangefinder, and it's really fantastic. I especially love the pulse vibration feature. Basically, you get this little buzz when you lock onto the flagstick. And it gives you this serene sense of confidence that you're getting the right number. And that's what it's all about. Confidence in the club you've chosen and the shot you're playing. Another benefit you get with a Precision Pro rangefinder like the NX9 Slope is industry-leading customer service. You'll talk to an actual person quickly and get any information or help you need. So if you're looking to step up your game or get an awesome gift, Check out the Father's Day sale through June 19th at PrecisionProGolf.com. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Trends in golf architecture develop slowly and unevenly. So by the early 2000s, while many Golden Age clubs are going the route of restoration, many more are heading the opposite direction. Boy, that story would probably start in 2006 when Reese Jones came in. That's Dick Howding again. And he's remembering when Oakland Hills hired Reese Jones to toughen up the South Course for the 2008 PGA Championship. So Trent's not with us any longer. We better get the next best thing, which would be Reese, his son. And basically, he just took the whole philosophy of his dad to extremes. The narrow fairways became narrower. The deep bunkers became deeper. The bunkering around the greens was pulled in tighter. And it was just like he had taken the monster and made it into a parody of itself. Almost immediately, the membership started to complain. They said, I can't get out of these damn bunkers. These are the most penal things I've ever seen. I can't play on this. And at the 2008 PGA, the feedback from the players is less than positive. It was like... You've ruined the course. Do the members really like this? And, and, you know, it was like, no, they don't. In addition to all of that, the now 100-year-old greens aren't draining very well. So it was like a coalescing of real physical problems with the course, like the way the bunkering had been done, 
the greens not draining, together with the dissatisfaction of the members. And they finally said, you know, we've got to have a new set of architectural eyes. Look at this. So in 2014, Oakland Hills interviews four architects. One is Reese Jones. Another is Sean Smith, who renovated the club's North Course. And the last two are architects known for their restoration work, Tom Doak and Gil Hance. We believe wholeheartedly that what we're here to do is to restore Ross. And that's what we're going to do. Gil Hance studied golf architecture at Cornell University, the same school where Robert Trent Jones had taken classes in the late 1920s. But whereas Jones had essentially invented his own course of study, Hans took part in a formal program. After he got his degree, he went to work for Tom Doak's firm, Renaissance Golf Design. Doak was also a Cornell grad. And in about 1991, Renaissance started consulting for the Creek Club, a Seth Rayner course on Long Island. Tom pitched to the club doing a, a restoration of Seth Rayner's work. This was Hans's first hands-on experience with this newfangled process known as golf course restoration. What did you take away from that experience at the Creek Club? Uh, it, it was interesting. You know, everything I had done and studied or aspired to do was, was more new course work. And Tom was you know, just starting out. And we had, we were fortunate we had a few projects that were based on new course work. But so I didn't know going into it how much I would enjoy it, but I thoroughly enjoyed the process of trying to uncover uh, older stuff and, and find out exactly what was done and, and do it in as authentic a way as possible. The other part of the equation that was really fascinating to me was the club politics angle. Because I was the guy on site, I was dealing with committee members. The Green Committee would come out. So that was a whole new world that was opening up as well as that ultimately would become an important part of, of what we've done going forward. Did you enjoy that part of it? I did. I think the part of it was I enjoy being around people. I enjoy talking about golf. Now, to put it mildly, not all golf architects like that aspect of the job. But Hans did, and he had a knack for it. Soon he founded his own firm, and he landed a series of restoration jobs at increasingly famous courses. There was the Catansett Club, the Country Club of Rochester, where Robert Trent Jones had caddied as a kid. There was Los Angeles Country Club, Winged Foot Golf Club, Marion Golf Club. And by 2014, he was confident enough to walk into an interview with the Green Committee at Oakland Hills and tell them he wasn't interested in doing anything but a Donald Ross restoration. How did he put it? He explained there may be a better green here or there, or some course may have a couple of better greens than you get, but there is no course on earth that has 18 better green complexes in one golf course. And he said, if you don't take care of that, you're just throwing your money away doing the rest of this crap. And that got their attention. And I think that what we had to come to a reckoning with at Oakland Hills was that probably, the, well, not probably, the, the most famous moment in the club's history as it relates to their championships was created by another golf course architect. And so we understood that walking in there, that not only were we talking about restoring the, the work of one of the greats of all times, but uh, reversing you know, what Robert Trent Jones had done to it to give it the name, the monster, you know, as Ben Hogan called it, and to try to take some of the monster out of the golf course. And we knew that would be a difficult task. And then he went on to say, 
from the greens and the surrounds, I would move out into the course and I would restore what Ross had done. And they listened to him and uh, thank God they said, yeah, we like that. That's what we want to do. Both the Green Committee and the Board of Directors buy into the idea, which is, on the one hand, surprising. I mean, this is the South Course at Oakland Hills. This is the origin point of the Open Doctor era. It's the Robert Trent Jones monster. On the other hand, by this time, 2014, many other major Golden Age courses in the U.S. have started or completed restoration work. Most notably, Pinehurst No. 2, Donald Ross's most famous design. So the neoclassical movement in golf architecture is mainstream at this point. And by hiring Gil Hance, the leadership at Oakland Hills really isn't doing anything too radical. But then, the members hear about it. And when the membership heard it, they were absolutely flabbergasted. I mean, they didn't expect anything like that. And it was like, it was a really divided the club, you know, because there are some people who are absolutely committed to the Trent Jones course. They think of it as, uh, oh, that's the monster. Oh, you can't do, this is like mortal sin. You can't do anything to defile the monster, you know? And if you do that, if you go back to Ross, well, what'll happen to the monster? It won't be the monster anymore, will it? In the course of these uh, debates at the club, I heard a guy say, this course wasn't crap before Trent Jones got here. And uh, my, my approach was, God intended this for a golf course, and he intended Ross to be the architect. Thank you. And so there was a big debate in the club. Do we want to go back to Ross, or do we want to maintain the monster? Hans does his presentation, goes through his proposal, and in September of 2016, the membership votes it down, 70% to 30%. And I, and I think the way I've described it is, is we... The process, in my mind, we had a committee that became enamored and, and, and fell in love with the, the master plan that we created. We had a board that became enamored and fell in love with the master plan we created. And we didn't give the membership as a whole a chance to get enamored and fall in love with it. And I think that when the scale and the scope of it was put in front of the membership, they went, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> you know, we, we think we've got something pretty good here. Now, all of a sudden, you're telling us we need to blow the whole thing up. And I think that's... That's ultimately where, where we all failed in delivering the message and maybe being probably should have been more transparent and a, and a little bit more done a better job communicating to the membership. This is the club politics element that you're talking about yeah. that, you, that you first saw at the Creek Club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The thing that had really prevented it passing the first time was I think a lot of, a lot of younger, newer members they didn't know that much about the club and the history, and they weren't really that sure and confident about, well, what made Oakland Hills the club you wanted to belong to? Is it because it was a Ross course, or is it because it was the Trent Jones monster? And so what we did is we formed a special committee to uh, investigate. There was like half the committee had been opposed to the plan, and half the committee was for the plan. And that committee focused on reaching out to the fence-sitters, the younger members who had voted against the plan because they weren't sure whether they should vote for it. And getting together with them in a one-on-one -on -one sort of basis and asking, what are your concerns? What are you thinking about? 
Well, here's why we want to do this. The, the real roots of the greatness of this course, Donald Ross, these greens that you think so highly of, those are Donald Ross. This is a plan that's going to take and expand out those greens to their original size. We want to broaden these fairways out, and here's why. We want to create ways for you to not have to always hit in these uh, predestined, determined spots that uh, Trent Jones created to test professional accuracy. We want to give all the players a way to play a fun round of golf. And I think that that sort of argument had credence with them. In 2018, the Oakland Hills membership votes again on the Hans restoration. Like last time, it's 70% to 30%. But this time, it's 70% in favor. So it's goodbye, Monster, goodbye, Robert Trent Jones, and hello to Gil Hans, channeling Donald Ross. Hey everyone, just wanted to cut in here quickly to tell you about another Father's Day sale. This one is happening in the Fried Egg Pro Shop. Everything except for photography is 15% off right now through June 19th. There's a ton of good stuff, hats, shirts, new head covers, various accessories. You'll definitely be able to find something for the dad in your life or just for yourself. Might as well make this an excuse to get something from the Fried Egg Pro Shop. All right, proshop.thefriedegg.com, Father's Day sale. Check it out. So what does golf course restoration look like in the 21st century? Well, first of all, there's a lot to do in order to get back the basic geometry and dimensions of the original design. There are greens to rebuild, bunkers to relocate, fairways to expand, trees to take out, and so on. But a lot of the time, this work, at least in the way that the Hans team carries it out, doesn't look an awful lot like restoration, strictly speaking. For example, here's how they did the South Course's greens. First, they got very detailed laser scans of every contour on every putting surface. Then they dug the greens out to the bottom of where Ross's workers had started building them. Then Hans's shapers contoured that floor level and lasered it to make sure it matched. Then they rebuilt the greens using current USGA recommendations for construction. In the process, they installed a high-tech precision air venting system, and they finished by comparing the result to photos from a 1929 program for the U.S. Women's Amateur at Oakland Hills. In other words, modernization in the name of restoration. I always have to laugh when I think about the term restoration because I've argued this many times, and I think Gil would agree with me. That's Bradley Klein again, who, by the way, was a historical consultant for Oakland Hills just prior to Hans's project. You're restoring the golf course to a condition that it was never in in the first place. But what you're doing is you're taking the basic strategy and shapes and honing them in with modern technology and agronomic techniques and maintenance standards so that they have a life and a, a vivid quality that really makes them stand out. It's for this reason that Hans himself prefers the term historic renovation for the type of work his team does at Golden Age Courses. It's classic architecture, presented with a contemporary sharpness. In mid-2021, the South Course at Oakland Hills, with its new old style, reopened. So, uh, general impressions about how the, uh, how the work at Oakland Hills has come out. 
I was blown away, and I, I know that course pretty well. I, I caddied there back in the 79 PGA. I've been there many, many times for the Open and the Ryder Cup. You know, it used to be a, a tree-lined golf course in suburban Detroit. Now it's this incredible piece of land that just is perfectly shaped and routed that you were never fully aware of. What was your sense of the reactions, the range of reactions from the membership to what they saw? Well, I think the reaction for the most part was pretty good. I think, and, and I think these younger guys who were, who were brought on board, I think they love it. And what's interesting is some of the guys my age who, who were against this, it's funny, I was talking to one and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, I said, I haven't played that often, maybe, you know, a half a dozen times. And he said, you know what, Dick? He said, I just, uh, it, it's hard for me to figure out how to play that course. What do you mean? You know? Well, you know, I played that other course for years and years. He said, I know exactly where I want to hit that ball and where I have to hit it, and where I'm going to hit it after that. And he said, now I'm not so sure where I'm supposed to put that ball. And I said, so now you have to think about it. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, that's what makes a Ross course great. You have to think about it. I am not a believer that we are in the new golden age of golf. I believe we're in a nostalgic age. And nostalgia takes us back to some forgotten time when women wore flappers and the jazz era was in. That's the voice of Robert Trent Jones's older son, Robert Trent Jones Jr., a prolific architect in his own right. And when he considers a project like the Oakland Hills restoration or historic renovation, he sees something very different. Now, I don't know what I haven't seen what's been done recently, but I'm told it was based upon a program for the 1929 amateur, which to me is like putting a classic Charleston dress on, on royalty. When you have someone as famous as Hogan defining your golf course as a monster, and it re, when, when you revert to something with a new an old dress on that monster, it's like Beowulf. You've killed the monster, but, but and you've also killed your history. So if you if you decide you want to erase that. The minute you put a bulldozer on a golf course and take the greens down to their base to put in sub air or some other technical need, you've lost the art. It would be like chipping away at a marble statue. You can't put it back. In other words, Jones Jr. believes that Oakland Hills has exchanged the concrete history of the Robert Trent Jones monster for a kind of airy, trendy nostalgia. So there's many, many elements in here that, that I think are programmatic and a kind of fashion. And I think you should think very carefully if you want to erase your literal history. At Oakland Hills, I haven't seen the work. I'm sure it's competent. The people doing it are knowledgeable and and so on. But it comes from a point of view of nostalgia. And it's hard to argue that we aren't in a somewhat nostalgic age, especially as compared to the restless, forward-looking optimism of the first Open Doctor era. People of Robert Trent Jones's time, at least upwardly mobile Americans, believed that the future would be better than the past. Today, maybe we're not so sure. In many respects, the modern world that Jones's generation built seems to not be working out very well. So maybe now we're more willing to turn our backs on the present and the future and take our cues from the deeper past. That's certainly the case in golf architecture right now. A few times in this series, I've listed the Robert Trent Jones renovations that defined the open doctor style in the 1950s. 
Oakland Hills, Baltusrol, Olympic Club, Oak Hill, Southern Hills. Today, Jones's work at all of those courses has been or will soon be largely undone by Andrew Green, a restoration specialist at Oak Hill, and by Gil Hance at the rest of the courses. So we have this set of championship courses that all have kind of this story. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the uh, the lingering question I have is like, what guarantee do we have that that's over, <laughs> right? Or, or or do we know that it's not over and that, that you know, things are just going to continue to cycle in and cycle out in, in fashion and in, in golf architecture? Well, this is the big issue. And it's interesting. Uh, I know Reese has resisted the tree removal. He says it's a fad. It's going to pass. He's told me that before. I don't think that's the case. I think, first of all, we don't know. So some things are going to be, but the tree removal is a matter of undoing years of destructive, uh, reckless tree planting. So that's a little different than a fad. The um, opening up the ground game, creating more lateral play and angles, that's returning to value. So what what's going on now is different than a fad, I think, because it's actually looking back at the history of the of the craft and deciding these things are worth going back to. You know, a fad to me would be colored sand in bunkers, which was, uh, you watch the Bob Hope classic in the late 60s, they had colored sand. Uh, Island greens, waterfalls, those are fads. That's that's all, you know, uh, the cherry on top of the Sunday kind of nonsense. That's a fad. Uh, I guess it's what you're saying is that the quality of the argument for why a golf course is the way it is really matters here. There's not a quality argument that we should have pink sand. Right. But there is a quality argument that you should open up a beautiful landscape to the viewer if it has been blocked by trees. That is not a fad. That is a return to certain core values. That's a it's that's different. So, uh final question and and I want to apologize in advance for it, but I I have to have to ask it. That's me trying to get out one last question to Gil Hans. Robert Trent Jones and Reese Jones both embraced the title of Open Doctor. They, they actively promoted themselves as Open Doctor. Um, you have now worked at uh, a few different courses where a Golden Age architect may have done the original design and then Robert Trent Jones came in and did a, a renovation for a U.S. Open or, or something and Reese Jones took over the reins from there and then you have uh, come in to those courses and generally done some restorative work. Uh, naturally, people are going to start throwing around this term open doctor for you. And I wonder how you react to that. In case it's not clear, I'm asking Gil Hance if time is a flat circle and if he is, in fact, the new open doctor. I mean, I, I think if, 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 Trent and Reese enjoyed that moniker, then they they certainly deserve it and can have it. I'm I'm not a huge fan of it. You know, if we do our job, the, all the conversation at Wingfoot should be about Tillinghast. All the conversation at Oakland Hills should be about Ross. All all the conversation at LACC should be about Thomas. Yeah, we're going to get mentioned as the guys that restored it, but it's one of those things where I think it's important the people who know know. And it's led to great you know, opportunities for us that we get to do these, this kind of work. And I think we tend to be able to handle the pressures associated with it and the relationships associated with it in, in a way that I'm truly, truly proud of. But I think ultimately, 
you know, I'm hopeful that that never gets attached to my name or somebody comes up with something more creative or interesting, you know, some other moniker. Uh, Jim Wagner has one for me, but I can't say it in public. So that's uh, <laughs> when we tear off the mics, I'll let you know. <laughs> Friday Stories is produced by me, Garrett Morrison, with transcript and editing help from Meg Atkins. The guests in this episode were Dick Howding, Bradley Klein, Gil Hans, and Robert Trent Jones Jr. In past episodes of this series, we also talked to Ed Groover and Jim Hansen. One extra thing, as you may have heard, Oakland Hills Country Club's historic clubhouse suffered a major fire a few months ago. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but a lot of history was lost. Recently, I had a conversation with Dick Howding about what he saw that day and what the next steps for the club might be. We'll put that out as a special brief extra episode in a few weeks. So that is a wrap, not only for the open doctor and his monster, but for season two of Fried Egg Stories. The theme of this season has been championship golf, and we've viewed that topic through a number of different lenses over seven episodes. So if you haven't listened to some of them, I'd love for you to go back and check them out. I'm really proud of them all. I want to give a special thanks, first of all, to Precision Pro for sponsoring the season. And I also want to thank Meg Atkins and the rest of the Fried Egg team for their help behind the scenes and really just for their patience (laughs) as I've spent months and months on some of these stories. They are truly fantastic people to work with. All right, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this season of Fried Egg Stories. And thank you, as always, for listening.